This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. For the past six months, the Kremlin has spun an alternate reality about what's happening in Ukraine. They say that they're following in the footsteps of the Red Army, which fought against Nazi Germany and liberated parts of Eastern Europe. The goal is to activate an emotional response. And whether you use information that is factually correct or factually incorrect is of secondary importance. They started shutting down Russian media. We could see that the law is changing, that everything is changing on the fly. They can say that journalism in this situation of war is like a criminal group. There is such a moral duty to try to get people to believe that what is happening is wrong. It's not that people are brainwashed, it's that people want to be brainwashed. Inside Russia's information war, after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. It's been just a tick over six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And over those months, we've read, viewed, and listened to reports horrifying and heart-wrenching. Stories about resettlement camps in Donetsk, of airstrikes on hospitals in a theater in Mariupol. Hundreds and hundreds of murdered civilians bound and showing signs of torture on the streets of Bucha. This, of course, is not the version of the story shown on Russian media. Those who don't see past the official accounts see a different war, one driven by Putin's virtuous quest to shield Russian sovereignty and Christian values from the depravity of the West. To mark this grim anniversary, we consider the information war Putin is waging, effectively, against his own people. That campaign is going far better than the one in Ukraine. First, we turn to journalists in the fight, struggling to deliver the facts on the ground to Russians in Russia from abroad. OTM producer Molly Schwartz has the story. On the day that Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Alec Loon and Veronika Solchenko headed to downtown Moscow. They took a film crew. They expected to find massive protests. There were some protesters. There were also lots of riot police. We were just filming arrest after arrest after arrest. People were coming out of the metro and unfurling a banner or holding up a sign. And as soon as they did that, even before they could get it all the way unfurled, riot police would have already grabbed them and would be packing them off into a police van. It was very easy for them to pick people up. Alec and Veronica are married. They both work as freelance journalists for Vice. Veronica is from Russia and Alec is from the U.S. They were filming these protests for a documentary they were making called The Russian Bubble. And all of a sudden, a couple of riot police grabbed me from behind and dragged me into a police van, shoved me up against the van, frisked me down, and put me in the van. The whole time I was trying to explain that I'm a journalist, I have an accreditation, I have a right to be here. I asked for the main commander officer to get Alec out. He came and did it, because they normally don't arrest us. Like, it doesn't really happen. In the past, Alec and Veronica's status as foreign correspondents protected them from the kind of government harassment that Russian journalists routinely faced. But then, after Russia invaded Crimea eight years ago, and especially in the last six months, 
things have gotten a lot worse for anyone reporting in Russia. Like the whole atmosphere became worse because they started shutting down Russian media. We could see that the law is changing, that everything is changing on the fly. Eight days after Russia invaded Ukraine, the government passed a law against the spreading of so-called fake news. Putin has signed a law banning calling the invasion of Ukraine what it is, an invasion and a war, which is now punishable up to 15 years in prison. The Kremlin today blocked Facebook and Twitter, and there are no independent media outlets left. The fallout was immediate. ABC News, CNN, CBS, and others temporarily suspended their work in Russia. Reuters and Bloomberg stopped publishing bylines on their articles. Even the New York Times, which has had a reporter in Moscow since 1919, reporting all through the Cold War, announced its departure. For outlets trying to keep their reporters on the ground in Russia, the new laws are a dangerous maze to navigate. I spoke to a foreign journalist who wouldn't speak to me on the record about how they work in Russia because they said going into detail would be, quote, a gift to the FSB. The crackdown decimated the foreign press, but it also wiped out a whole segment of the Russian press, who are now reporting on Russia from outside of Russia. They can say that journalism in this situation of war is like a criminal uh, group. Kirill Martinov is the editor-in-chief of Nova Gazeta Europe, which launched in Riga, Latvia's capital, in April. And everyone who helps us is basically criminals too. Like most of his staff, Martinov used to work at Nova Gazeta, the biggest, most prestigious independent news source in Russia. For almost 30 years, Novaya Gazeta kept publishing through censorship laws and assassinations of several of their journalists. But then, last March, the Russian government forced the paper to close and its journalists to leave the country, however they could. We don't have direct flights with Europe from Russia. Almost all of Europe had closed its airspace to Russia, so to get to a country that's a next-door neighbor, Martinov had to fly halfway around the world through Istanbul. People travel by bus, like it was the 20th century, to cross international border. Riga is Latvia's small capital city. It's become a kind of haven for Russian journalists. They've received humanitarian visas from the Latvian government. You go to market to buy some bread or milk, and you meet 10 people. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, this is crazy. Katerina Kotrikadze is the news director and anchor of TV Rain, called Dozhd in Russian. I am from Tbilisi, Georgia, originally, and I know what the small city looks like, but this is even smaller, <laughs> like, because all of us are concentrated. In the first week of the war, Russia's prosecutor general put pressure on the channel. TV Rain announced they would temporarily halt their operations. And on March 3rd, in a dramatic final broadcast, the staff gathered behind the anchor's table. I think, friends, on this note, we should end our broadcast. And no to war. Definitely no to war. Nearly five months after being forced to close down, Russia's last independent TV channel is back on air. In July, TV Rain relaunched in exile from Riga. Over the next two hours, we will cover the top news of the day. It's a phrase that I haven't uttered in four and a half months. Putin's latest assault on the independent press is a marked departure from the past. It was important to have a couple of independent media organizations in Russia to save some kind of connections with the Western world. Katerina Kochukadze. When they were blaming him for 
being not democratic or for human rights violations in Russia, he would always answer, come on, we have TV Rain, we have independent radio station, Echo of Moscow, we have independent newspaper, Nova Gazeta. He wanted us to be some kind of show for the Western partners. But after he started this war, it didn't make sense anymore. He didn't want to pretend. He didn't need to pretend anymore. Since Putin came to power in 2000, 28 Russian journalists have been assassinated. And 28 more Russian and Ukrainian journalists are languishing in prison. So our journalists work now from Georgia, Lithuania, Latvia, Poland, Germany, France, Britain, America, Austria, and Portugal. Roman Dobrokhatov was introduced to me as Russia's greatest ever investigative reporter. He founded The Insider in 2013, a scrappy online outlet that covers things like how Putin was behind the poisoning of his political foe, Alexei Navalny. Then, in July of last year, FSB officers showed up at Dobrokhatov's apartment and at his parents' apartment in the middle of the night. They took all the computers, phones, and also my passports without any explanations. So I understood that they don't want me to leave the country. That's why I left the country the next day. Dobrokhotov managed to get out of Russia without a passport, crossing the border by foot. Martinov, Kochukadze, and Dobrokhotov all told me that one of the ways they're able to report on Russia from abroad is by working with a network of shadow journalists who are still in Russia. Kirill Martinov. They don't have accreditations. They are not a real journalist in terms of Russian law. I don't know how sustainable is it. It's quite dangerous and we don't understand even what kind of problems they can face. When they were making their documentary, foreign correspondents Alec Lewin and Veronika Solchenko knew it would be risky to report on the ground in Russia. But they say it gave them insights that are really hard to get from a distance. For us, the big question since the very first days of the war was what's going to happen when the body bags start coming back. He speculated that maybe the invasion of Ukraine would end up being like the disastrous Soviet war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Where, you know, a, a bloody invasion poisons the population against the government. And in that case, it contributed, I think, to the decline and fall of the Soviet Union. In fact, the war in Ukraine has been far deadlier for Russia than Afghanistan ever was. Around 15,000 Russian soldiers died in Afghanistan over the course of a decade. The numbers aren't totally clear yet, but estimates show that around the same number and potentially many, many more Russians have already died fighting in Ukraine in the last six months. Dagestan has the highest casualties of any region. But even there, grieving relatives were suspicious of anyone who questioned the invasion. This is sound from the documentary the couple filmed last May. Loon is speaking to a woman whose husband was killed in the fighting in eastern Ukraine. She tells Loon that her only hope is that when she leaves this world, she and her husband will spend eternity together. Loon asks if she knew her husband was in Ukraine. She says yes, she found out from the news. The widow says they all know what they're fighting for, that her husband died as a hero. And NATO poses a real threat to Russia. With every question, the mood in the interview gets a little more uneasy. Then Loon asks if she thinks the offensive in Ukraine is to defend Russia. 
The widow's eyes widen for a second, and she asks, why are you interviewing us? Did the district administration approve this? The widow cuts the interview short, and the journalists head out. After the interview, the family called a local official, and he ended up putting out a police alert for us. Police questioned us for about two hours. They couldn't find anything wrong with our documents, but it was pretty tense there for a while. When we were first reporting right after the war started, you know, we were reporting on why the protests were so small. And I remember one person who was protesting the war telling me, well, it's not that people are brainwashed, it's that people want to be brainwashed. And I think what she meant by that was that it's very difficult in that environment to question the war because everyone you know is going along with it. I guess what we learned on this reporting trip to Dagestan was that that's even more true if you've lost a loved one in the conflict. It's even harder to question the conflict. You can live as a military widow and receive state benefits and be acknowledged and even celebrated in the community, or you can put your entire family at risk by questioning the war. The Russian government hasn't been publishing any numbers since March about how many people have died in this war. It's another sign of the tight control they have over what information is circulated. But Silchenko thinks the restrictive new laws could backfire. For many years now, the Russian propaganda was so effective also because there were a lot of independent media which existed. So for many Russians who lived in Moscow, St. Petersburg or big regional cities, they didn't feel that the information was forbidden and they didn't feel the need for information. They didn't feel the craving. But now I think this may create that craving for the alternative information because even in USSR, people were jamming the radio and trying to listen to the BBC Russian service. That's why this service existed. It was kind of, for a lot of people, a game to see what they are actually saying in the free world. And I think maybe it will happen again. It just will take years to get to that point. In hindsight, it's clear that this slow strangulation of Russia's independent press was inevitable. With the patience of a model KGB officer, Putin began to tighten his grip immediately after taking office, incrementally suppressing more and more information really ramping up attacks on the media in the year before the invasion, grooming Russian viewers over the past eight years to see Ukrainians as an enemy, as people who persecute ethnic Russians. And the strategy has worked. Now others are copying it. Serbian President Alexander Vucic recently started claiming that ethnic Serbs are being persecuted in Kosovo. It sounds familiar. For On the Media, I'm Molly Schwartz. Coming up, the lexicon of Putin's information war. This is On the Media. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour... We'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. In April 1917, President Woodrow Wilson established the Committee on Public Information to mobilize public opinion about the First World War across all available media, producing tens of thousands of posters and pamphlets and editorials depicting the enemy as a remorseless, soulless monster. After that war ended, the committee was impugned as having oversold the threat. So FDR's efforts to rally citizens for the next world war were a tad more transparent and a touch less hysterical. There was still censorship and egregious suppression of dissent, but not quite as egregious. I mention this only as a reminder that using domestic propaganda to get a country behind a war is by no means novel and U.S. hands are by no means clean. But this is about Russia now and how its propaganda has evolved. Molly? In 1923, the Cheka, which was the Soviet secret police at that time, created the first ever office dedicated to disinformation. It's a history that Thomas Ridd, professor at Johns Hopkins Sice, writes about in his book, Active Measures. The KGB, or its predecessor organization, the Cheka, was born deceiving its adversaries almost from day one. That is very different in Western democratically accountable intelligence agencies. Yes, Western intelligence agencies also did engage in psychological operations and deception. But then if we closely trace these operations, we see that they almost completely stop in the late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s. The Soviets did the opposite. They doubled down. The KGB upgraded their disinformation department to an entire service called Service A for active measures. Active measures, in the language of the KGB. Yuri Besmanov a former KGB spy. It's a great brainwashing process. The goal is to activate an emotional response. Thomas Ridd. And whether you use information that is factually correct or factually incorrect is of secondary importance. The crucial tactic was to mix fact and fiction. I think some officers in Stasi and elsewhere as well in KGB sometimes use that 80% true, 20% false mix. Because if you have lies shielded by truth, then of course it is harder to find the lies. An example of this is an operation that people know today as Operation Infection. Designed to enhance the fear of AIDS and to claim that the U.S. government had designed HIV-AIDS, which is a complete lie, obviously. But it's important, again, here to appreciate there was genuine, actual fear of this new mysterious virus in the early 1980s. There were also disclosures of U.S. government programs that had used medical experimentation on U.S. citizens. And the Soviets deliberately used that real existing doubt that Americans had about actual stories and just connected the dots in a way that was exaggerating and outright forging this information that the U.S. Army at Fort Detrick, Maryland, had created AIDS. The theory was picked up by the American press. A Soviet military publication claims the virus that causes AIDS leaked from a U.S. Army laboratory conducting experiments in biological warfare. Sometimes the lies and truths became so intertwined that Soviet intelligence agencies actually deceived themselves. Active measures take you really into a bit of a constructivist nightmare scenario because the way we describe them is part of how they work. I was terrified when I wrote that book that I would essentially ascribe 
more effect to these operations than there was really there in practice. If I did, I would in a way participate in the active measure. Sometimes you can never really know if an operation worked, but it's a history that's very relevant today. KGB, and we know this from the archives, was an organization that was very history-focused. Putin himself will be familiar with that history. So in that sense, I have little doubt that they still consider active measures as a key component of their tradecraft and are engaging in it. Thomas Ridd is the author of Active Measures. Francis Scar is a senior digital journalist for BBC Monitoring, where he follows Russian state media, essentially disinformation in the here and now. In a piece in The Telegraph, he noted that though Putin's so-called special operation now is waged with the corporeal weapons of war, it really began a little over eight years ago when Ukrainians ousted its pro-Putin leadership, followed hard upon by Russia's annexing Crimea. And since then, the Russian media have covered Ukraine far, far more than it covers itself. These talk shows I watch, they dominate the daily schedules on Russian TV, and they almost never talk about what's going on in Russia, only if Putin's given some big speech or it's his annual press conference or something. But they never talk about the reality faced by Russians. It's constantly focused on Ukraine and sometimes the West more broadly. This obsession, really, with Ukraine, that Ukraine is this bridgehead for the United States to launch some kind of invasion against Russia, that it's become an American client state, has been consumed by Russians since 2014. And this kind of thinking starts to seep into the wider consciousness of ordinary Russians. When the tanks crossed the border on the 24th of February, when Russia started launching missiles at Ukrainian cities, people accepted it because they'd been told for so long that Ukraine was hostile towards Russia and that this confrontation was inevitable. 70% of Russians, you observe, receive their news from state TV. You also made the fascinating point that Russians in general were never all that interested in the news. Yes, it's a strange kind of paradox where the average Russian pensioners, the average Russian housewife or a bored security guard sitting in his cabin, they're likely to have state TV on in the corner. It's background noise. These talk shows, they're not designed to be watched with your powers of reasoning switched on. They're entertaining. There's lots of flashing lights and big displays on studio screens. People have said to me, when I put these clips on Twitter of Russian TV, they almost look like game shows. Mm -hmm. It's designed to play to people's emotions. You'll turn on and you'll hear some angry so-called experts screaming about Ukrainian fascists or something. Also, it's important to point out that this isn't happening in a vacuum. A lot of Russians see Ukraine in terms of the Russian Empire, where it's this sort of far-flung borderland. that It's not really a sovereign state. That's what Ukraine means, right? Borderland in Russian. Exactly. Even in the 21st century, when we like to think of sovereign states having the right to protect themselves, the right to exist on a fundamental level, it's something that a vast amount of the Russian population disagrees with because of these long-running preconceptions. This is something that can happen anywhere, not just in Russia. From your hours consuming these shows, you've noticed an evolving lexicon in state media for describing the war. At first, the invasion was called a, quote, special operation. But when things weren't going the way that Russia expected, there emerged a new framing, still a predominant one. It is a war, but it's not against Ukraine. It's against NATO. 
Yes, that's exactly right. The first month of this invasion, Russian TV spoke of it in almost surgical terms, that they were just removing Ukraine's military potential, its capabilities, but without targeting civilians in any way. The idea that the average Russian viewer got from this was that Ukraine didn't really exist as a sovereign state and it would soon give in and be controlled by Russia, whatever that might mean politically. Once it became clear that Ukraine was actually putting up a fight, Russia had to try and explain this to its domestic audience. Firstly, said, oh, it's because we're not targeting civilians, we're only targeting military targets, which of course we know not to be true, that this is taking us longer than we expected because we don't want to cause unnecessary loss of life. And the other way they did this was to say, well, actually, we're now just fighting a proxy war against the West. The West is sending weapons to Ukraine. They're making our job much harder. As more and more time passed and it became clear that this was something that was going to go on for a long time, they started using terms like World War III or talking about a clash of civilizations between the West and Russia. But what I've seen in the last few weeks, which I think is quite interesting, is that Perhaps this is something we can compare with the West as well, where people say, oh, there's war fatigue. People aren't interested in this story anymore. There's other stories like rising prices. Perhaps in Russia, too, there's also fear from the Kremlin that people might become fatigued with the war. So I started to see other stories creep back into these talk shows. What are these stories that seem to be creeping in, interrupting the Ukrainian narrative? There's been a lot of coverage of the LGBTQ community in the United States and also across Europe. There was a law going through the German parliament, an amendment to a previous law on the rights of trans people to self-identify. Disgusted by this as if Western civilization has gone down the drain and that Russia doesn't want to become like this. On Russian TV, a war correspondent, when asked to give the latest from the front, said that the Cossacks told me we're going to smash those LGBT troops. That's the kind of language now quite common on Russian TV. Absurd things like one presenter saying the other day that people in the UK would simply die out because so many people were gay that they had just stopped reproducing. <laughs> Of course, Russia itself has a very, very low birth rate. So that just illustrates this kind of disconnect between them constantly talking about what's going on abroad and never really addressing what's going on in their own country. You are about to mention another storyline that has playing along with the war narrative. The energy crisis, particularly in Europe, they will pick up on all kinds of stories from regional websites, for example, that people in Sweden have been shoplifting more and more because they simply can't afford basic necessities. Mm -hmm. In Germany, how certain cities have had to turn off the hot water because they can't afford the gas anymore. The way they frame it is that this is an immature generation of European politicians mm. who are making decisions not in the interests of their own people, but simply feuding with Russia. Can you tell me a little bit about the media stars of these narratives? Uh, one of them I know is uh, Olga Skabeva, known as the Iron Doll of Putin TV, and also Margarita Simonian, who's head of the international state broadcaster RT. Olga Skabeva 
together with her husband, Yevgeny Popov, mm-hmm. who is also a deputy for Putin's party, United Russia, in the Duma. They co-present their show, which is called 60 Minutes, which I believe was named after a show in the US <laughs> since the war started. This program is comically now two and a half hours. It's broadcast twice a day in the morning and then in the evening. Olga Skabeyeva is particularly anti-Western. She has been one of the main mouthpieces for the Kremlin in shaping this narrative of Ukraine being a kind of fascist proxy state controlled by the United States. She's also a big voice in the notion that this is a war against NATO. They need to demilitarize NATO, not just Ukraine. Indeed. Sometimes I think even the guests on these shows who are all really behind the war effort, you get the impression that they're not on board entirely because the way she talks about the situation is sometimes as if she actually wants some kind of nuclear war. And Margarita Simonyan, the other one who you mentioned, she is a frequent guest on these talk shows. She said a few years ago she saw RT's role as being at the forefront of the information war against hostile entities, which is how she sees the West. Another major figure is uh, Vladimir Solovyov. He has a late-night talk show and a morning radio program, which lasts for several hours. He's spoken of Ukraine not deserving to exist as a state and is known for his personal attacks on Western politicians as well. We started talking about language framing the war. There's also new language framing Putin himself on state media. He is called Supreme Commander-in-Chief. Do you have any other buzzwords like that? Yes. The way they describe the Russian soldiers fighting and the Ukrainian soldiers fighting is quite telling. So the Russians, they're called liberators, rescuing people from the suffering they've been subjected to for eight years. They say that they're following in the footsteps of the Red Army, which fought against Nazi Germany and liberated parts of Eastern Europe. On the other side, you've got the Ukrainian army. They're called Nazis. They're called fascists. Sometimes they even call them Satanists. I found it interesting that the army of Ukraine was referred to as armed groupings of Ukraine, whereas the Russian troops were referred to as the United or the Allied Forces. Almost sounds like the Second World War. And on the other hand, you've got this acronym in Russian for the Armed Forces of Ukraine, which is VSU. And they started saying VFU on TV, which means, like you said, armed groups, armed formations, which for the average Russian would be reminiscent of the way Russian TV describes rebels in Syria. So what it really does is plant this idea in the viewer's head that the Ukrainian army is not a legitimate army linked to a sovereign state, but some kind of paramilitary force. Okay, so we've got as a narrative that the Russian army is liberating Ukraine, that the Russians are forced to use Ukraine as a proxy in its fight against NATO and all the corrupting influences of the West. From the beginning, we've had denazification as a justification. Are there any other ones that have come up? Medusa said that the Kremlin has issued some interesting ideas to Russian state media, Medusa being an independent news service outside the country. They said sources in the Kremlin 
said the Kremlin has issued a kind of recommendation for Russian media to start comparing this war to historic wars that Russia fought in the Middle Ages. If you look at the way Putin talks about historical figures, it's a real hodgepodge. He's very much a, a man of the Soviet era, but he will talk about the kind of Russian imperial past. He will talk about the Second World War a lot. But then there are other figures like this medieval prince Alexander Nevsky, before Russia existed as a modern state, of course, fighting against the Teutonic Knights. Recently, it was the anniversary of Peter the Great's birth, and Putin went to an exhibition that had been set up to mark the occasion. He clearly spends a lot of his time thinking about himself in terms of the unfolding of history. The baptism of the Kievan Rus in 988, Medusa says that... The Kremlin says state media ought to draw parallels between the current war and that. Do you know what that's about? One of the ways in which they talk about the LGBT community in the West is that it's a kind of deviation from Christian values and that countries in in Europe and the US and Canada have turned their backs on their traditions and become essentially depraved. And I think what this is saying is that Russia is staying true to these values from when Kievan Rus, this kind of Russian proto-state or Ukrainian proto-state, you could argue, begun this sort of tradition of Orthodox Christianity in the Eastern Slavic world, drawing these dividing lines between the West and Russia. Is it too much to say that it's framed as a battle for the soul of the world? Well, it's definitely something that comes up on TV occasionally. People in Russia will say that they are Orthodox Christians, but that's very much, I think, because they identify that with being Russian. The narrative beamed out by the state is that Russia needs to protect its values. Whether these values actually exist or not is is another question. If you look at the divorce rate in Russia, it's extremely high. The number of abortions as well, things that wouldn't necessarily tie in with the kind of so-called traditional values they're trying to promote. Thank you very much, Francis. Thank you. Francis Scar is a senior digital journalist for BBC Monitoring, where he focuses on Russian state television. Coming up, how Russian propaganda changes minds and influences people. I had the truth. Sounds a lot like people who believe conspiracy theories. I realize it now. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Independent journalist Anastasia Carrier was born and raised in Yoshkar-Ala in what she says is a poorer province in Western Russia. She spent the last few years in the U.S. working as a reporter and actively wrenching herself away from the propaganda she'd imbibed all her life about Russia's unequaled prominence, probity, and purity that she took on as articles of faith and fact. For most of her childhood, though, news and politics were just faint voices in the background, from adult conversations overheard or brief flickers on her grandma's TV tuned to the evening news. Her grandma, a professor of German, was an avid news consumer. She was a very easygoing, cheerful person who loved and loved Soviet Union. In 1999, Karia's grandma 
finally found a new leader in which to instill her trust. Carrier was still in kindergarten then, but she remembers the catastrophe that rocked her world. In September of 99, over 300 people died in three separate bombings of apartment buildings. Carrier avoided tall apartment buildings on the way to school for weeks afterwards in fear. That was when Putin, then director of the KGB, spoke out to the people. This confident and young person who said that he's going to hold Chechen people accountable. In 2000, riding a wave of popularity after the bombings, Putin ran for president, much to the delight of Carrier's family. On election day, she and her grandma stood in line outside the voting booths a few blocks from their home. And she took me in the in the booth with a curtain, and she lifted me up and showed me where to mark for Putin. I was so excited. So were the Chechens ultimately to blame for those apartment bombings? Later I learned that there is a group of historians and journalists who blame Putin directly or indirectly for orchestrating those bombings. Is there proof of that? Yes, they caught some of the KGB agents, I think, delivering the bombs in the buildings. And Putin, around this time, was the director of KGB, or he just stepped down. I remember this is what Litvinenko was working on when he was poisoned. Ah, Litvinenko, who was poisoned by people associated with Putin. Yes, and another reporter... Anna Politkovskaya? Yes, she was also working on that. And she was killed as well. Right. Now let's jump ahead to 2011, 2012, when you changed high schools. I had teachers who were more encouraging of real critical thinking. We would talk about different kind of governments, economic issues, history... The topic of the Soviet Union and Stalin's repressions came up and she spoke about the repressions that left millions of Russians dead. And this was new to me. You said that the moral clarity felt alien. It really did. But at the same time, my family became interested in so-called alternative history. Alternative history as determined by Putin. Yes, One of the big ideas is that Stalin is this misunderstood genius who saved Russia and the people who died is just necessary sacrifice. And probably because of the teacher who pushed back in such a casual way, I never really became interested in this alternative history. In 2014, Russia invaded and subsequently annexed Crimea. And that's when you became staunchly pro-Putin. The coverage in Russia was that the new Ukrainian government was Nazi government and anything Nazi connected is a very sensitive topic for Russians because victory in the Second World War is the huge point of pride. So the idea of Nazis is triggering in any shape or form. This was my sense of what was happening when I came to the U.S. for the first time for half a year as an exchange student. So I was removed from Russian propaganda and I got to see the snippets of the Western coverage of what's happening. And I remember feeling that this was bizarre and wrong. Then I went back to Russia. This was after Putin actually annexed Crimea. 
And this was where it became more of an issue for me. I started to feel like this is such an important thing that Russians done. We saved brothers and sisters from Nazi regime. We helped them to get back to Russia that they allegedly missed. So I become more pro-Putin. But I also realized that the West is really unhappy with this. So the stakes are higher to have a strong leader. That is Putin. How was the West presented, and the U.S. in particular, when you were back in Russia? The West couldn't stand the idea that Russia was so big and so strong, and that the sanctions that was happening, it was just the U.S. couldn't bear the idea of Russia doing good around the world. It's 2016, you moved to the U.S. to attend university in West Virginia, and for a whole year... You were in contention with a lot of your classmates. Yes, I moved to the U.S. for a second bachelor's degree, and I became more outspoken politically in journalism class conversations. Whenever I felt like somebody was saying something wrong, I would insert my so-called fact check. But I don't think anyone around me was particularly invested on trying to get me see the reality. There was definitely a lot of, I'm going to let you finish this statement and we're going to move on from this topic. Did you feel patronized? No, I didn't. If anything, I felt a little more special for having this opposite point of view to the popular narrative. I had Mm -hmm. the truth. Sounds a lot like people who believe conspiracy theories. I realize it now. Did you write anything? Yes, when the conversation about Russians hacking the elections started, I strongly did not believe it. And I was trying to find a proof that this didn't happen. And I did find a piece that said that it's nearly impossible to hack the certain kind of voting machines at the moment. So I was pretty sad on this. And at the same time, we had an opinion writing class. And I wrote about the U.S., and the Western media treating Russia unfairly and misunderstanding all the great things we do in the world. And Annex and Crimea, to my shame, made appearance in this piece. And I used this photo I found online of allegedly building in Crimea, showing a lot of Russian flags from the windows as a proof that Ukrainians really wanted to join Russia. You brought your piece to the editor at the local paper, right? Yes, and he and the other editor push back and they push back and I edit and edit and edit until it becomes a different piece. Because when I tried to fact check all the anecdotes I used in the story, I couldn't really find the sources and I couldn't really understand where some of these facts even appeared from. Uh, But I still stood pro-Putin and I still felt that the West somehow misinterprets Russia and I couldn't figure out where the media went wrong because as a journalist, I was trained to fact-check, to collect information and evidence. Then there was the coverage of Russia, which I didn't agree with, and I really couldn't understand at what point of the news organization somebody would give an order to start lying. And I started to sense that it was possible that no one really gave this order. So this process of unraveling your own beliefs, and, you know, our beliefs are part of us. You experienced an acute sense of political homelessness. Yes, 
I think that me being proud of being Russian became one of the cornerstones of my identity. I didn't realize how big it was for me until it was pulled out from under me. And I didn't really realize who I was or what was true about the world for some time afterwards. It took a long time and a lot of work to just educate myself enough on history and the current affairs to start to form an opinion. You told our producer that you couldn't really accept that one thing is false and that everything else is true, that it's not how the world works. What did you mean? When I was trying to make sense of what happened to me, all the lies were connected to each other. I would accept that this was a lie and then that would pull two more lies from the past that I learned. And the best way to sort through this was just to stop believing everything. Everything I was raised with was a lie. It is truly fascinating looking back of how many small things that I thought were common knowledge were based on some kind of misinformation, propaganda, something very small that added up to something toxic in the end. The biggest part of it is that I believe that Russia could do nothing wrong, that Russia was the power for good. And I had evidence that proved that Russia wasn't the power for good. And that cast a long shadow of doubt and everything else I ever knew about Russia. And the more I started to learn about the Russian history, the more I started to realize that there were a lot of half-truths that I was taught in school, especially about the darker times of the Soviet Union. Tell me about how you learned that stuff. Yes, I had a wonderful teacher. She was my politics professor, Sally, and I took her international relations class and I showed up at her office almost every day. She would recommend me books and she was really a key person in helping me pull through this very dark and lonely time of not knowing what was true. So six months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. Things shifted again. Did this have an impact on your own ideological shift? Before the war in Ukraine, these disagreements with my parents, this realization that they are under influence of propaganda was just something that inconvenienced my ability to be honest and really talk about what was happening or what I believed. There was this conversation I recently had with my parents, and I don't remember what exactly I was saying, but at this point, I'm already writing about the war in Ukraine for a political magazine, and I already interviewed refugees from Ukraine. And there was this one woman who told me about her neighbor being shot by Russians for nothing, about the starvation of people who sit in the basements, about the car wrecks. And you can see that these cars were shot. So I have all this information as a journalist. I collected and fact-checked. And I'm trying every now and then to bring it up to my parents. And I'm not credible enough. Just because I'm in the U.S., I think my parents pity me for being brainwashed. I brought up this information I collected. And my, my dad asked me not to bullshit him. And it sounds like a small thing, but... The only time my dad raised his voice in me in such a way, it was when I, when I cursed at him as a five-year-old kid to make him stop tickling me. So this was huge. This was 
a big moment. Yeah, as if you're cursing at him again by bringing up these things. He got very defensive. Their beliefs just don't really make sense in the context of their character. They were supposed to be spared because, again, they are educated. And there are so many Russians who do not have the same level of education. They do not have the same financial safety. They didn't travel around the world. My parents did. They travel every year. So they were supposed to escape this thing, and they didn't. You've reported on groups like QAnon. You've talked to your parents. They all are forced to live or choose to live in pretty impermeable media bubbles. You say, essentially, you have to get them to trust you, but how do you do that? I think you should be poking in their beliefs and providing them with facts that would hopefully get them to doubt their beliefs, but not push it on them. Well, that really worked well with your dad. Right. Yes, yes. Sorry. No, you're right. You can just hope it's going to work. I know that from my time, there is nothing anyone could have said or done to change my point of view. So I think what we can do with anyone who has beliefs based on conspiracies is to just keep talking without trying to humiliate them or enrage them and hope that whenever they have doubts, they're going to come to you with questions and you would have a productive discussion. It's a little bit trickier with Russians now because there is such a moral duty to try to help Ukraine and to get people believe that what is happening is wrong, maybe just because you don't want your family and friends to support the bloodshed. So I think there is the responsibility to have these conversations and hope that something is going to come out of them. Anastasia, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This was, this was fun. Anastasia Carrier is an independent journalist who reports on business, politics, misinformation, and online radicalization. That's the show this week. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber. This week, Molly Schwartz was the lead producer for the show. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Nerviano and Adrian Lilly. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.